Welcome to the Innovation Cafe here on What She Said. I'm Chris Abel, and I'm always interested in finding people who can share a passion for a very specific scientist, someone who they're inspired by, someone they consider to be a hero or a heroine. So this week, I'm happy to connect you with Wendy McKeegan, co-author of the new IMAX film Amazon Adventure, which mixes wildlife photography, very impressive photography, with actors and costumes to recreate the historic journey of a man named Henry Bates who traveled to the Amazon in the late 1800s to collect evidence in support of the theory of evolution. We're also going to hear from Dr. Robert Reed, Associate Professor at the University of Cornell, who is the discoverer of the very genes responsible for the observations Bates made so very long ago, and also worked as a consulting scientist on this movie, a fantastic film that, instead of using traditional special effects, relied upon scientists and people who could get the actual animals on film, captured with wildlife photographers, and using the actual instruments and science specimens that were used from so long ago to make this film feel very authentic. But first, let's begin with Wendy and why she is such a Henry Bates fan, and why she wants you to be a big fan too. I think that audiences will be both inspired and informed if we tell the human story with the scientific discovery. So we said Amazon Adventure, Henry Walter Bates. Nobody knows about him. He's a nobody. He was the son and grandson of sock makers, and he had an insatiable desire to learn about the natural world. And he went to the Amazon in the 1850s for 11 years. He almost died three times. He risked his life for science. Okay, I'm in. This is a perfect marriage of these two things. So we wanted to do that because we think, you know, there's a lot of challenges on planet Earth. And uh, we got to get as many people, not just becoming scientists, the next generation, but the average citizen needs to understand how ecosystems work, how the world works, how nature works. I mean, Margaret Atwood said, we're suffering from NDD, that's nature deficit disorder. So this story was right there to be grabbed up. The scientist who made this discovery, no one knows of them. Let's do the story. Although it has aspects of a lot of the kind of stories that people will think of. You know, oh, it's Amazon Adventure. You're going to have illness. You're going to have animals that are dangerous. You're going to have lots of indigenous culture. But for you, as you mentioned, the, the heart of this is really a detective story to you. Yes. When you look at one of the greatest theories of all time, natural selection, why do so many people say they, they don't understand it? They don't get it? Well, I'll tell you why. I know after trying for two and a half years with my co-writer as well to break it open, to understand it, because it's counterintuitive. And yet it's so fundamental to understanding how things work, because a lot of people think animals will themselves to change. And they don't understand that it is the predator and the prey who are determining, and that the predator is the one who's deciding, no, you look too much like this, I could get eaten. So I'm not gonna eat you. And as Dr. Reed said, they're the ones that are selecting red colored insects versus blue. And then over time, thousands of years, only the blue survived because the predator, for whatever reason, and that's scientists' job to find out what those reasons are. Because of the future discoveries in medicine, in combating climate change, in figuring out ecosystems and man's role in it, 
that's going to come from this fundamental understanding. And it's worrisome that in some places the levels of people who don't understand this basic concept. And, you know, I'm, I'm happy that, you know, in Canada the numbers are pretty good, but, you know, as we go around the world, when you see fresh minds look at it and they go, oh my goodness, I get it. You're recreating their expedition. And doing so, like, actually having the actual animals from that expedition captured somehow on film. Yes. And trying to have the exact instruments that were used and all sorts of that kind of minutia and detail and exciting stuff. Tell me yeah. about the, the process of researching, of, of trying to, what you're delving for in order to make this story come across. Yes, it was extremely challenging. Very little was known about Henry Bates. That's because he sort of got lost in the shuffle with Darwin and, and with Alfred Wallace. There's a lot of information from that time on evolutionary biology and what was happening, particularly about you know Darwin. So, and there's a lot of misinformation about Henry Bates, a lot of very shoddy research that went on. I had to read through hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of letters, hundreds of scientific articles, journals, uh, personal biographies, to get a little gem here and there, you know, when the word Henry Bates would come up, I would start to salivate. So I had to put it all together. But when you're working with the top scientific organizations in the world, the National Science Foundation, the Howard Hughes Medical Institute through their Tangle Bank Studios, the Moore Foundation, you're working with the top evolutionary biologists in the world, the top mimicry experts in the world, the top uh, Brazilian language experts, because Bates learned 11 languages, and he, we show his interaction, a bit of it, with the natives and this language he spoke, which was lingua gerale. So we had to deal with those top experts to choose which words he would have spoken with the natives. This takes so much time, me and my research team, and everything is vetted. Because, of course, the scientists say, oh, you've got to put this in. And I say, mm, not so sure the audience is going to find that as, as, as important as you do. And then the people, the, the history of science and the story of Bates people, ah, you've got to put that in, you know. You've got to put in the elect when he shows the natives the electric eel and, the, and he, he passes it on, you know, through a knife and, and, and they see this happen and they're just blown away. Because why? It would have cost us thousands and thousands of dollars to do. And we would have had to wait like we did over a year to find the, you know, um, mimicking a caterpillar that looks like the head of a snake. That, and then we have to have a crew ready. And then our director flies, you know, has to fly in from, from London because it wasn't part of when we shot because we wanted to make sure we got it. That's a million dollar shot. Every single audience person that sees it of any age goes, <gasps> they cannot believe it. You tell me what you thought of it. Yeah, it was very striking. I mean, I've, I'm familiar with a lot of examples of mimicry, uh, but I hadn't seen that one. And it really is the one that sells it right across a lot of the ideas. And it's very complex because kids at first say, well, what? How did that come to be? How can a four-inch moth caterpillar, a moth caterpillar, that eventually turns into a beautiful big moth, how can it look? How did it change to look like the head of a different species, of a, a poisonous snake? The key word is poisonous because the bird, the flight response, has to look and has a half a second to decide, is that, is that a snake or is that not a snake? And the bird... The birds that think, hesitate for a quarter of a second and it is a snake, they're dead. So this is how it works, both with predator and prey. The birds that are intended to survive 
are the ones that say, no thanks. And then that caterpillar gets to live on. But can you imagine Bates, none of that knowledge, in a place where he never knew when he went up that river what he was going to find, but he wouldn't give up. And the chances of that discovery were so beyond a needle in a haystack finding one. It had to be in that place in the world of insects where they constantly change when it's, there's no winter, when he is so clever like a detective looking for the minutia of their color patterns. And he was a brilliant taxonomist, right? And the fact that we used the same butterflies from the Museum of Natural History in London, we, they lent us Bates's 160-year-old butterflies. His butterflies were collected in Paris, in London. That's the scene we show in the shop. Everybody, they didn't have to have the latest phone. They had to have the latest, you know, morpho butterfly, or they had to have, you know, some botanical print or a real collection like Bates. That's why Bates kept his own duplicates, so he could study them later on. Yeah, it's extraordinary. People who see your film are going to see actors, they're going to see people wearing costumes, recreating events. But when we talk about special effects, as you've just mentioned, it's not that you are reaching out to Weta or Industrial Light and Magic. No, you're reaching out to scientists. You have scientists on the set at the time that it's shooting, and you have organizations, some of the best organizations, lending their very specimens so they can be included in the film. That must have been such a tremendous honor to be able to have that. It was, and then after we, we, we finished filming, they put the butterflies into quarantine, and we said, is it because they've been exposed to filmmakers? <laughs> it was, no, they've been exposed to possible things that you know could deteriorate the quality of them. Shooting at Down House, filming at Darwin's home, and talking to the curatorial staff there, all along the way, people kept saying, Bates, Bates, wow, unbelievable. This story, right? And if you just look up what Darwin had to say about Bates, it's phenomenal. If you look at, when you start research, look at the obituaries of the, of, of the people that you're writing about. It's a good place to start. And you see the range of people. It didn't matter if it was Lord Alberdeen or it was just, you know, the, the, the guy down the street. Bates captured people because he was one of the most humble human beings, a great storyteller. He got more of an advance for his book than Darwin got for his. And Darwin let, uh, told Bates to go to his publisher to write his you know, adventures on the Amazon. And he went, and Darwin was sort of in the correspondence a bit taken aback that Bates' book, because it was adventure. And Darwin admired Bates so much because he couldn't believe that this guy who was a nobody, who hadn't been you know, classically educated, who was from the lower classes. And he went and he f gave his life. I mean, Darwin knew that being on the comfort of the beagle is a little bit different than the way Bates and Wallace traveled. And so he held them in great admiration, both Bates and Wallace. And uh, so it is a story of ins inspiration, ultimately, uh, along with the great scientific discovery. Yeah, and I guess these stories are always great to share because you're showing how someone who does come from unexpected origins, Bates worked in a stockings factory, yeah. and yet there is the ability to go out and do real science or get involved in science, science projects out there, that that's something that needs to be reminded again and again and again. Yes, he was a collector, so he was already as a young boy 
much to the delight and surprise of his father, was just couldn't stop collecting. He got his brothers involved in collecting. He learned all the Latin names for the Beatles. He would just go up to wealthy men who he knew collected and say, do you want to go collect with me? So he just had this infectious spirit, right, which was really very rare. So I think that's something that some people can relate to. It's the way we did it is, you know, just like a kid might want to collect a hockey card, and he knows all the players, knows the background, knows how they skate. That's the passion that some scientists have. It's unstoppable. They know that those species, they know the books, they know the discoveries. They want to go, as Dr. Reed said, they want to go to Peru, they want to go down there, they want to see, they want to make a discovery. I mean, you saw the emotion when Bates, and it's true, he wrote about it. When they named a butterfly after him, Clitia Batesii, for him, that was like everything. He worked 13-hour days in the, in the stocking factory from the time he was 13, okay? How did he get to the Amazon? Because he just self-taught. He self-taught himself. He went to night school. That's how he met Alfred Wallace. Alfred Wallace taught him drawing. His illustrations, Bates' illustrations, are unbelievable. His ability to write, he loved opera, he played the guitar, he had a red-faced monkey and capuchins as pets. He was really an animal whisperer in lots of ways and he loved, he loved the native people who he learned so much from and part of the reason Darwin admired him, he was one of the first to write about them, to learn their languages, to learn their ways. He knew the blowpipe. He talks about how they cured him, they saved his life by rubbing in ant paste on his wounds, right? And their respect for nature. I'm not taking more than you need. Bates was beginning to see these relationships, right? So it's far beyond even his particular, you know, discoveries. He's the first one, the first person on earth who put forward a case for speciation, which means one species comes from another. And it's just, it's just amazing that he did that. But again, that information sort of got lost in, in the shuffle, so very honored to bring back his, his story to the world. Toronto-based SK Films really scored when they recruited Dr. Robert Reed, associate professor at the University of Cornell, to be among the consulting scientists on Amazon Adventure, as he is the discoverer of the very genes in the long-winged butterfly that was responsible for the patterns that Henry Bates himself discovered more than a hundred years ago. Did you know much about his expedition, his adventures down to the Amazon before getting involved in this film? Was your appreciation of Bates early on about his research? Or it was mostly about his research. Um, right? So actually, I, I learned a lot from working on this movie about his, you know, his history. You know, I, I hadn't read his biography. But, you know, I, I was familiar with, with, with you know, his discoveries and, and, and his ideas, but I think this film puts into really beautiful historical context. Yeah, I wasn't really exposed to before. Right. I mean, great. it's it's quite something to be someone who takes up an interest in the natural world and then to have the gumption to actually put yourself on a ship and to go across to another continent. And yeah, I mean, it's almost unimaginable. Yeah, yeah. Just leaving your life behind and jumping to the Amazon for 11 years. I mean, the film does a pretty good job of, of getting close to what it's like to stand there in the middle of a rainforest, right? And especially as a... A biologist, you know, you could, it's like you're standing in the, the sea of, of um, kind of mystery, this huge puzzle, right? There's so many pieces just flying and moving around you, and you know now we can begin to think about this since we know more about inheritance and genetics. 
as this very complicated universe of genomes, right, all around you, all interacting with each other, you know, some genomes going extinct, some surviving, just changing over time, interacting with each other. Can you understand his drive to want to take on these risks, to take on these incredible ventures, when it, it's not like he had a background as a mountain climber or a background that would lead to any sort of sense of adventure or exploration? I mean, when you are someone that you like to collect bugs, it can be quite the leap to go from a very comfortable lifestyle where you can collect bugs, you can sort of indulge in that interest, but then to decide, no, no, I really need to go almost to the other side of the planet to go after this idea. Oh, sure, I can relate to that. I mean, really, I mean, that's what, that's what drives most scientists to do what they do, right? I, it's, uh, you know, even these days, it's, it's risky to some extent to go into academia, right? Uh, I, I decided to make studying insect diversity my profession, right? I mean, in a way, professionally, it's a little bit like throwing yourself into the Amazon. And uh, I've tackled a lot of big problems that I never knew if they would work or come to fruition. I mean, there, there's a lot of risk in doing science, right? I mean, we take on these projects all the time. We don't know if they're going to work. We don't know if they're going to, if, you know, after a couple of years, things aren't working, if we want to keep going for it or, or give it up. And one of the things I was involved with was finding the genes that control color patterns on, on the, the long-wing butterflies that Bates worked on. And that was a big project that involved a lot of people, and it, it took 10 years Right, to find one of these genes, and you know, it's, it's striking that that's almost as long as Bates spent in the Amazon, right? right? Working on one focused question for a long time, you know, when you're trying to build a career, you know, <laughs> you don't have any papers, you know, to show. Right, and you're having to <clears throat> work in the face of doubt of whether or not the results are going to appear. Don't know if it's going to work. Get... You don't know if you're going to get funding anymore. So I think one of the fun moments in the movie is when he realized that the long wings are different in that they don't seem to try to escape being caught. Mm -hmm. uh, and that you know, looks like almost a movie moment as it's created. But Because most people watching the movie, that's not their experience. They ever see a butterfly and they try to catch it, good luck. It's yeah. going to flit all over the place, be very unpredictable. But here in this film, it almost seems very friendly. And it, it's maybe not that case. Yeah, so it's really striking. So I... I when I was an undergraduate, I had read about these butterflies, and I was really excited to like go finally see them. And you know, I did my first trip to the tropics, and it was incredible, like how mellow they are. I mean, they're just like honey badger, like they don't care, right? And that's because they're completely toxic. Like birds completely leave these things alone, and they just flutter around. You can walk right up to them. You just pick them off the flowers, and it's it's really striking. And uh, there's actually mimicry in how the butterflies fly as well. So you can have these. Um, these model species that are completely unrelated. I mean, some of them are actually moths that fly during the day, just like butterflies, and they have the same wing beat frequency, right? They have like the same kind of loping flight. Just so to birds, I mean, yeah, to, to birds, they, they look like the butterflies. Um, it's, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, so we, we know that selection works on the behavior as well as the color pattern. Now, your uh, research in terms of pinpointing the exact genes that are behind this process. In some ways, you sort of are following the footsteps of Bates and Darwin in that you're providing more detailed evidence for the theories that they were talking about. What was the reaction like when you did that? Were you it, it, sort of echoing the same process that they went through in terms of there being a community of uh, like minds all exploring the same process and then 
here you've kind of nailed some of the details? Yeah, I think there was a lot of excitement when we first started discovering specific genes. I mean, I mean, really, we're beyond the, we're far beyond the, the place where we're providing evidence for an old theory. I mean, what a lot of people in evolution now are chasing after is a detailed understanding of, of mechanism. I mean, we know natural selection happens in the field. Uh, I mean, there's, right, there's like millions of pages published on this stuff, right? So, there, I mean, there's no question about that. I mean, the question is now, like, how many genes does it take for something to evolve? What are the genes? Are there interesting uh, emergent properties of these genes? When evolution happens, is it because like uh, the function of a protein is changing, or is it because the logic around the gene is changing? Right. If you have a gene that is driving evolution, how does that gene move across a landscape? I mean, do you actually just have you know the whole species coming and going, or are species leaky, and can genes move from one species to another to help them adapt? What is a species? Right. Right. I mean, so. These aren't questions necessarily about, you know, is evolution happening or not, but it's, you know, what is the basis of diversity, right? Mm-hmm. What's the genetic basis of diversity, and you know, how does a genome architecture and pressures, you know, from nature and you know, landscapes, I mean, how do they make this, uh, this complex map of, of genes? Amazon Adventure is playing at IMAX theaters across North America, including the Ontario Science Centre, which is where we recorded this conversation. You want to go check it out just for the caterpillar that looks like a snake. You're not going to believe your eyes. What happens when we play outside? We become healthier, both mentally and physically. We become more creative and more focused. We connect with nature, each other, and ourselves. Let's take this outside. A new podcast hosted by me, Marianne Iveson, an aspiring outdoor athlete and nature lover. I speak to athletes, outdoor professionals, and scientists about their connection to nature, how it affects their performance and everyday life. Let's take this outside. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and at letstakethisoutside.ca. I'm Connie Teeson, the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.